return to Paul's letter to the Colossians, and so I invite you to please turn with me in your Bibles again to Colossians chapter 1, where we'll pick up where we left off last time at verse 24. Colossians 1 at verse 24. We'll look just this afternoon at verses 24 to 29. Paul, you recall, has just set before his readers the supremacy of Christ. We've considered how the very same Christ in whom all things hold together, that the very same Christ is also holding you and your life together. And so Paul has just urged his readers to remain stable and, and steadfast in this supreme Savior. For God, we heard last time in Christ, has not only reconciled all things to himself under heaven, but he's also reconciled you. And this Christ has done in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And now we see that Christ's purposes and Paul's purposes are perfectly Align. That's what we discover in verses 24 to 29. Let's give our careful attention then to God's holy word. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. To make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. This is God's holy word. May he bless it to us as we meditate upon it this afternoon. Well, dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, here in verse 28, the Apostle Paul finally makes clear what he has been alluding to all along. Him we proclaim, he says, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature or, or complete in Christ. To be sure, we've been able to infer from what he's already said that this is the primary burden of his letter. This is the primary burden to, to set before us the, the all-sufficient Savior to find our, our fulfillment, our spiritual fullness in him. For Christ, we've seen, is the image of the invisible God. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In him, said the Apostle Paul, the, the fullness of God was pleased to, to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, including you and me. Including you and me. In order that he might present us holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And now, as I said a few moments ago, we learn that Christ's purposes and Paul's purposes are perfectly aligned. Paul wants for his readers what Christ wants for them. For this I toil, says Paul, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. This is Paul's pastoral aim. This is Paul's chief ambition, to present every one of his readers mature, complete in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, we learn, is willing to suffer for this. He, he rejoices in his sufferings for their sake because he knows, he knows that it's worth it. Paul has come to know that 
that the gospel message which God has, has called him to proclaim is a message that's worth suffering for. It's a message worth dying for. For this message reveals the mystery that, that was hidden for ages and generations, namely the, the glorious mystery, the glorious reality that the Lord Jesus now dwells within us as the hope of glory. And this hope is more than sufficient for Paul to rejoice in his sufferings. For Paul knows that every trial he's had to endure as an apostle has served to better equip the saints to love Christ and to live for Christ in this wicked world. And this is what Paul wants his readers to recognize, that, that in contrast to whatever false teachings they have come upon them, the message that Paul has for them is a message that's worth suffering for. It's a message worth dying for. And that's what we see this afternoon. Paul rejoices in his sufferings because he sees his own ministry as being modeled off of Christ's ministry. And so as we consider Paul's toil, his struggle for the apostolic ministry, we notice in the first place Paul's model. Paul's model for apostolic ministry is none other than the Lord Jesus himself. That's what we discover here in verse 24, where he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Just as Christ came into the world to serve rather than be served, and just as Christ came into the world to endure much pain and suffering for the sake of the church, so too Paul has placed himself in that same mold. Paul has, has placed himself in this mold of, of the cross for the sake of of Christ's body that is the church. And one of the questions that this model raises for you and me is whether God might be using our own suffering in a similar way. Sometimes trials and sufferings come our way in this life and we wonder, why, why am I going through this? And we wonder, how can God possibly be, be working this suffering for my good? And those aren't bad questions to ask. After all, Paul says in Romans chapter 5 that, that sufferings always lead to the betterment of God's people. Suffering, says Paul, produces endurance, and, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, says Paul, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. But perhaps when sufferings come our way, rather than asking how can God possibly be, possibly be working this for my good, perhaps we should be asking, how might God be using my suffering for the good of someone else? That's perhaps a more searching question. And that's a good question because it's a question that causes us to, to look away from ourselves. It's a question that, that implants that sense of self-forgetfulness in our hearts for the sake of others who might be going through something similar. Your unbelieving neighbors and coworkers, for example, are watching you. When, when the trial comes your way, they're, they're taking note as to how you respond to the trial. To quote one pastor, they're waiting to see if you will practice what you preach with regards to self-denial and the cross. And this, according to 1 Peter 3.15, very well may be the occasion for an unbeliever asking the question, what is the reason for the hope that is within you? This is equally true for your brothers and sisters in Christ on numerous occasions. I've, I've had the privilege to, to visit those who are sick and shut in with a goal to, to encourage them. And what happens so often, they end up encouraging me. 
And this, you see, is how Paul is, is thinking through his, his sufferings, these sufferings that God has called him to, to endure as an apostle of Christ. As Paul follows in the steps of his Savior in accordance with that principle of 1 Peter 2, 21, where, Paul, where Peter says, For to this you have been called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. As Paul now follows in the steps of his Savior, he sees his sufferings as, as benefiting others. And in his own flesh, he says, he is thereby filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, the church. Now, what does Paul mean by those words? Most commentators will note that this verse is perhaps the most challenging verse to interpret in Paul's epistle, and I would tend to agree. I trust it's easy enough for us to, to grasp something of how Paul can rejoice in his sufferings. We see that language in various places throughout the, Old, throughout the New Testament. But what does Paul mean here when he says that he is filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ? That's a rather strange way of speaking, isn't it? It doesn't, it doesn't sound very reformed to say that. But we can begin to understand something of what Paul is getting at here from the outset by understanding what Paul isn't saying. Because what Paul isn't saying is that Christ's atoning sacrifice was in some way insufficient or incomplete. Paul's not saying, well, well Christ only accomplished so much. He did 98% of the work and now, and now 2% needs to be filled up to bring, to bring his work to completion. That, of course, would be contrary to what the apostle has been highlighting and, and emphasizing from the start of this letter. As we heard last time when Christ died on the cross, he reconciled us. He dealt with all of our sins, past, present, and, and future. When Christ said from the cross, it is finished, he, he meant just that. The work of redemption was finished, that it had been accomplished once and for all. No, Paul is not teaching us here that Christ's sacrifice was in any way lacking in its efficacious power to save us. Nor is Paul suggesting that, that Christians can somehow make atonement for other Christians. That's uh, the interpretation that the Roman Catholic Church adopted in the Middle Ages, that treasury of merit whereby a Christian could, could perform enough good works to get another Christian out of purgatory. That's, of course, isn't what Paul is saying either. Nothing of the sort. Rather, what Paul, as Paul follows in Christ's steps and as he looks to Christ as the model, par excellence for gospel ministry, Paul sees himself and his ministry as being something of, of an extension of Christ's ministry, as an extension of, of Christ's ongoing work in the world. Paul speaks this way, for example, in 2 Corinthians 5, where he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and the new has come. All this is from God, he, Paul says, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, says Paul. God, making his appeal through us, we implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Paul's words here in Colossians 1.24 are, are reminiscent of what he said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 
where he spoke of his being afflicted in, in every way, but, but not crushed. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul describes the apostolic ministry as being a ministry of being perplexed and persecuted and struck down, but not driven to despair, forsaken, or destroyed. And then he says in verses 10 to 12 of that chapter, for we are always carrying in our body the dying of the Lord Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for his sake, so that the life of Christ also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. That's what Paul is essentially getting at here in these passages in 2 Corinthians 4, as well as here in Colossians 1, is that as one of Christ's suffering apostles, his ministry is in essence an extension of Christ's ministry. For what Christ has accomplished on the cross must now be applied to the hearts and lives of his people. And the way in which Christ applies that which he accomplished is by his word and spirit and through the ministry of reconciliation. That's what Paul is is getting at in Romans chapter 10 where he says everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's true. But then what does Paul say? He says, but how shall they call upon him of whom they have never heard? How can they hear unless someone preaches to them? So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Paul as an apostle of Christ is identifying himself with Christ and he's identifying himself with the sufferings of Christ to show that his ministry is modeled off of Christ's ministry and that his labors are not for his own sake but for their sake. Paul suffers for the sake of the gospel because Paul believes with all his heart, he believes with his whole being that the gospel is worth suffering for. And that's what he is pressing upon his readers here. As we read in 2 Corinthians 11, five times Paul received the the 40 lashes minus one. Three times he was beaten and flogged and once he was stoned. And this very letter that Paul now writes to the Colossians, we know he writes from prison. Paul rejoices in his sufferings because he sees his suffering as being for their sake. And so Paul is pressing his readers with the question, what kind of message is worth suffering for in this way? What kind of message is worth being beaten for and flogged for? What kind of message is worth being imprisoned for? And the answer, of course, is only the message of the gospel, only the message that Christ is an all-sufficient Savior in whom the fullness of God has been pleased to dwell. Only the message of the gospel is worth suffering for in this way. To quote one pastor, here is a man who is so gripped by the message he was proclaiming that he is not just willing, but he is eager to suffer for it. And within a few short years, he'll be willing to die for it. Paul rejoices in his sufferings for their sake because he believes that the gospel is not only worth living for, but it's worth dying for. As he highlights at the end of 2 Corinthians 4, Paul understands that his sufferings in the present are preparing him for glory in the future. For this light momentary affliction, he says, is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look to the things 
not that are seen, but the things that are unseen. Paul, you see, has a, has a cross-shaped mentality. His whole frame of mind is, is shaped by this pattern of the cross, this pattern of, of suffering unto glory. This pattern of suffering unto glory, which is so prominent through, throughout the New Testament. Paul is gripped by this frame of mind. And this frame of mind is the frame of mind that we must have as well. Because unless this frame of mind is also our frame of mind, then we'll never be able to endure the trials or tribulations that come our way. We'll never understand them. We'll never understand what God is doing through them unless we understand that this is the pattern of the Christian life, that suffering leads to glory. This is the way in which God is pleased to shame the world. As Paul says in Romans 8, 17, the only way in which the Christian can share in Christ's glories is if he also shares in Christ's sufferings. For it has been granted to you, says Paul in Philippians 1, 29, that you should not only believe in Christ, but it has been granted to you, given to you from God, that you should suffer for his sake. As the Apostle Peter says, it is a gracious thing in the sight of God when one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Rejoice in your sufferings, says Peter. Insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that on the last day his glory may be revealed in you. And it's in light of this reality that Paul can rejoice in his sufferings. For Paul knows that his labors will not be in vain. His suffering will not be in vain. Because the one who has commissioned him to engage in these labors and the one who has brought him through these sufferings is none other than the Lord himself. And that's what we see in the second place this afternoon. Paul's mandate was from God himself. In verse 25, he says, Of this church I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. This we know was Paul's greatest privilege in this life. That although he was least among the apostles on account of the fact that he had persecuted the church of God, the grace of Christ overflowed for him in such a way that he judged Paul faithful, appointing him for his servants. And so in contrast to these false teachers in Colossae who have, who have pushed themselves forward, Paul now reminds his readers that his mandate, his message, has indeed come from the Lord himself. As, as Christ said to Ananias in Acts chapter 9 when he said, go find, the apostle, go find Saul who's been persecuting me, he says, Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and children of, the Israel, of Israel for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Paul's gospel mandate was from the Lord himself. He did not intrude upon it, but it was given him from above. Christ is the one who made him a minister. And the Greek word used here in verse 25 for minister is a word that typically refers to one of two things. In some instances, it's a word that, that's used to refer to one who is an authorized agent who's been entrusted to declare an important message. In other instances, it's a word that's used to refer to a person who is a servant of a superior. But it would seem that both of these uh, uses of the word are in view here. Paul has been commissioned by God to faithfully convey the message of God 
And he's been commissioned by God to be a servant of God. Christ is his superior. Christ is the one who's, who's given him this mandate to, to preach this word, particularly to the Gentiles. And so Paul has thus carried out his apostolic ministry and work in that light. He's begun to proclaim Christ to the nations. And the word that he's preached is not his own word, but it's the word of God. That's what Paul says of his ministry, for example, and he commends that uh, the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. In 1 Thessalonians 1, he commends them, saying, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it really is the word of God, which is at work in you believers. And this is the word, the saving word, which the Colossians themselves have come to hear through the ministry of, of Epaphras, who heard this gospel from the Apostle Paul. The word of God has been brought to bear upon their lives. The mystery once hidden for ages and generations has, has finally been revealed, says Paul. Even the Gentiles, such as the Colossians themselves, have been let in on the family secret of salvation. That is, and that's what Paul is highlighting here in verses 26 and 27. This was Paul's gospel message. Paul, we read, has been appointed by God to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of his glory, of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. These Colossians, like their brothers and sisters in Ephesus, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, have, have been brought in. They've been brought into the family. They're no longer strangers of God or aliens to the covenants of promise. They're no they no longer belong to that dead end kingdom of darkness, as Paul said in, earlier on in chapter 1 of Colossians. But they've been brought into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of God's own Son. They've been shown the family secret, the secret of salvation in Christ. And this is the gospel message that Paul has been declaring to them all along. This was, has been Paul's burden. To make them see that true fullness and satisfaction isn't going to be found anywhere else but Christ and Christ alone is the hope of glory. Some of these Colossians we've heard before have been led to think that they need something more. That there must be something better out there for them. But Paul is speaking to them. He's speaking to us again by way of reminders for us to say, what more do you need? You've already You've already received something that is from another world. The message of God himself concerning his son in whom you have redemption and the forgiveness of your sins. And this Christ, says Paul, who is the image of God who came into the world as the one in whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, this very same Christ now dwells within you. This is the glorious mystery. This is the gospel message. Christ is in you as the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, says Paul. Christ is the substance and the heart of Paul's message. As, as Paul says elsewhere in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. 
but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Him we proclaim, says Paul, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, says Paul, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. We've considered Paul's gospel model. We've considered his mandate and his message, but now we come to his mission. To what end does Paul toil? To what end does Paul suffer? To what end does Paul write these words in his prison cell with all joy and thanksgiving? It is, it is to present everyone mature or complete in Christ. This congregation is Paul's gospel mission as he pours out his prayers on the Colossians' behalf, as he seeks to warn them and teach them his desire that they would grow up into spiritual maturity. As we heard this morning, the apostle, these words of the apostle assume then that, that God's people are weak, that by nature we are immature, that we're not strong or sturdy in ourselves. That as Lord's Day 2052 reminds us, we are so weak that we can't stand on our own even for a moment. And so we stand in need of gospel maturity. As John Calvin would say, no believer ever graduates or, or gets beyond the school of Christ. There's always more to learn, always more to, to grasp more fully. And because our faith is often so weak, we need, to re- we need to be reminded of Christ again and again. We need to be told of Christ and we need to be presented with all the riches of Christ Sunday after Sunday, day after day. Because there is no plateauing in the Christian life. You're either moving in a, in a positive, upward direction, or you're moving in a negative, downward direction. And so we need to be warned. We need to be taught the gospel over and over again until we finally reach full maturity. Paul writes here with a, with a view towards that last day, that day of Christ's second coming, when when we shall finally be presented holy and blameless and above reproach before him. When Paul says he labors to, pre- to present everyone mature in Christ, the word he used there for mature can be translated as complete. It's the Greek word teleos, which means that end goal, that end aim, that chief aim to present us full, complete, mature in the Lord Jesus But until that day comes, Paul says, he's going to toil and struggle with all that is within him. Paul's aims and Christ's aims are perfectly aligned. As Paul serves Christ, he also serves the aims of Christ. And so Paul's aim is to present everyone mature in Christ. Everything Paul does, all of his energy, you could say, is is channeled, is funneled funneled into this one thing to present us mature, complete in Christ. And it is a struggle, he says, for this I toil and struggle. It's not easy, he says, because in in addition to having received five times the 40 lashes minus one, in addition to his being beaten and flogged and stoned, what else does Paul add to that list of his struggles and sufferings in 2 Corinthians 11? Paul says that in addition to his beatings and dangers, Apart from those other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. 
Who is weak? He says, and I am not weak. He has this daily anxiety for the welfare of the churches for whom he labors. But notice here how in the midst of Paul's weakness, in the midst of his struggle, in the midst of his toil, what does Paul recognize? He recognizes that although he is not himself sufficient for any of these things, it's Christ's energy who works within him. Did you catch how he couched his toil at the end of verse 29? For this I toil, struggling with all his energy. Struggling with all Christ's energy that he powerfully works within me. It's Christ who sustains him and it's Christ who strengthens him. This is what Christ does for us as well in the midst of our sufferings, in the midst of our trials and tribulations. We have Christ in us, the hope of glory. As we share in his sufferings, we can be sure that we'll share in his glory. He strengthens us for another day of gospel service. His grace is sufficient for us and his power is made perfect in our weakness. And perhaps he's using your sufferings in the here and now to encourage someone else. What a privilege this might be to be an instrument in the Savior's hand for for the good of another, for the edification of another, for the encouragement of, of someone else. This congregation is the Savior whom we serve. This is a Savior who's worth living for, who's worth dying for. This is the Savior whom the Apostle Paul assures us of that coming day that Christ is coming again. That there is a day coming when we shall be presented fully mature, complete in Him. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we We come before you and we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and we thank you for the ministry of the Apostle Paul, for the manner in which he heralded forth the good news of Christ and engaged in the ministry of reconciliation and counted it joy to suffer for Christ's sake and for the church's sake. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand our sufferings in a similar light to place ourselves in the framework of the cross, to have a cross-shaped mentality, to recognize that suffering prepares us for glory. Father, as we endure our sufferings, we pray that in our own lives, our sufferings would indeed produce for us endurance, and endurance would produce character, and that character would produce hope within us, which will not put us to shame. We also pray, Lord, that you'd use our sufferings for the encouragement of others, that we would see our sufferings as being a benefit to others as the Apostle Paul did so long ago. We would count it a joy to be used of Christ in this way. Father, we long for the day when we shall be finally presented fully mature and complete in Christ. But until that day comes, Father, may we toil, may we struggle with all his energy in us to grow in spiritual maturity, to grow in wisdom and knowledge and in the fear of the Lord. These things we pray, Lord, in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.